0: Please be seated. Well, this morning um, I was up at 4:40 a.m. I just kind of woke up, but it's my new routine. I, I uh, like to get a long workout in on Sunday morning uh, for church before church, which is really kind of fun. Now I, I've been trying to lose weight for a long time. I mean, a long time, and it's just been harder and harder and harder as I get older. So I, uh, when I turned 59 back in April. I just said, something got, got changed. I just got to double down my efforts. So I wrote this plan called Operation Turn 60. And, um, and, uh, and so I've been at it. I've gone 16 straight weeks, haven't missed a workout six days a week, which has been really, really phenomenal. Yay, thank you. Um, and so you know, today was another day. And so I got back from the workout, and, you know, and I'm kind of getting ready to take my shower and brush my teeth, that sort of thing. And I happen to look at my phone, and it's Micah. Uh, who was going to preach this morning. And he said, hey, we're at the hospital. We think Laura's water is broke. Um, This is their first one, so you usually can tell, right? But uh, anyway, uh, uh, (laughs) we got four, so I've been through it. and, and, and then he's saying things like, oh, I might make it. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't think so. So I said, like, oh, boy, I hope we have video. And then, uh, and then it turns out that um, I got to prepare a message this morning uh, pretty much on the fly. <laughs> but I'm so thankful because it's God's word. And it's His Spirit that's helping us. And I I think the message is actually going to be encouraging. But, uh, you know, I I invite you to give me grace and focus on what God uh, wants to tell you and kind of overlook some of my stumbling from time to time during the message. Well, I want to start the message by by, uh, sharing a little story is that we became grandparents, Jill and I, uh, eight weeks ago. Uh, Little Thomas Stalvey, uh, my daughter and son-in-law, have a beautiful baby boy. And now the week the, that he was to be born, the cute little house they've got in Colonial Town that was built in 1929, two days before uh, Tommy was born, they found out they have termites. And so they poked a couple of holes in the wall and they came out in biblical proportions. I mean, you would just like, you couldn't, there was, they swept up like a pile of them this big. They were everywhere. And, uh, and you could imagine, so they couldn't take him home. But the landlord didn't, you know, was, oh, that's fine. We'll just kind of get in there and do some work. And, the, you know, we'll work around the baby. Now, if you know my wife, she is the sweetest human being ever. I mean, people adore her because she's just got the gift of nice. I mean, she's really one of the nicest people I think God has ever created. It, it, she really is amazing. Uh, but you've heard the old adage that a mama bear with her cubs... All right. So she got involved with the negotiations with the landlord. And, uh, <laughs> and she was kind. She does not get mean. And she does not kind of uh, power up in any way. But she was firm. Jill is kind of like a marshmallow with a steel rod running right through the middle. All right, so she's soft and on the outside. But man, is she strong. And it's just like, no. We're not babies sleep with their mouth open. We're not going to be in a house where there's termites. And no, you're going to have to tent the house, and that's all kinds of chemicals. and no. So she negotiated getting out of the lease. Unbelievable. Way to go, Jill. Um, so they're all living with us now. Tommy and Mom and Dad are living with us. And I believe that Jill planted the termites. All right. Grandma, Mama, you know, so I'm going to get a visa bill, termite larva, you know, it's coming through. And uh, but, so they've been with us, and uh, they're looking for where they're going to go next. So uh, what was interesting, though, is like in her negotiations, this is unacceptable. This will not do. There's just no way uh, that this can happen. Well, in the story that is unfolded in the book of Micah, that's exactly where God got. And to the point in his relationship with his people. They had so wandered away from God. They had so started participating in idolatry and greed, and the, the very culture itself was crumbling around them that God says, enough. No, no, we can't continue this way. That, that's not an option. That's, that's not acceptable this will not do. And so God steps in. And that's what's happening. So let's look at a familiar uh, chart by now, if you've been with us over the summer. Uh, This is kind of the timeline of, of the various minor prophets. And you'll notice that we have Israel that got divided into two kingdoms. All right. So you've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, for some of you, the moment I started talking about Old Testament and kingdoms of Israel, and like, you know, you're thinking about tuning out, this is really interesting stuff. So, so let's lay the foundation because this is really, really important. So hang with me with this, okay? So we got the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And the Northern Kingdom um, is, had all of the kings that you study about in Chronicles in first and 1 and 2 Kings. Not one of them, not a single one, God said was good. They were all evil. They all led the people of God astray, which is just mind-blowing that this is the time in which Israel is living. In the southern kingdom, the the kingdom of Judah, now they had 20 different kings, and eight of them, only eight, were considered kind of good to okay. And so it's specifically in the time of Micah, He is preaching uh, during the reign of three kings. So his ministry is a very long, lifelong ministry. And the three kings are Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Thanks, you can go ahead and take that down. Now, Jotham is described as somebody who actually uh, followed the Lord, but not completely. All right. And his sin, his problem is he wasn't courageous enough to lead the people to stop practicing idolatry. By now, the nation of Israel is they've gone off the deep end. They're just going through the motions of worshiping Yahweh, of worshiping God. But they have adopted all the religions of the the neighboring countries around them. And they're worshiping their gods in in forms of idolatry. And it's really a sad time in Israel's history. Um, Then there's Ahaz. This guy was a mess. I mean, a total train wreck. He was so evil, he actually sacrificed one of his baby boys in a fire offering, a burnt offering, to one of the false gods in worship of idolatry. Can you even imagine? I'm watching Tommy. what What would cause somebody to think that that's an okay thing that would honor God? This guy was evil. And then there was Hezekiah, who also did what is right in the eyes of the Lord, Uh, but he kind of had an on-again, off-again thing going on. But he too, like Jotham, did not lead Israel courageously to challenge their behaviors in the whole area of idolatry. And so we see the nation of Israel falling into idolatry, which leads them to kind of be people who are are greedy. And, And there's so much now injustice that have crept into the society of God's people and they're going apostate, which is a fancy word for saying they're, they're no longer believing in God, the way God calls them to be followers of Christ. There's a quote that I, I just love from Kaylee, because when we hear, Kaylee's our a, a regroup director here, and she's just got such a gift for words. But when we hear idolatry, we probably think kind of Old Testament, and we, we have images of you know, uh, faraway cultures that maybe are worshiping a stone idol or a wood carving or whatever. And and that really, believe it or not, does go on today. I've traveled around the world many times and I've been to the Orient. And I remember one particular place we were at is they had their various idols up on the wall. And people would come in and pay homage and and worship these idols. And it was was going, wow, that's amazing. You're worshiping this thing, this guy carved out of wood, and you're attributing to it deity. Uh, which was just kind of fascinating to watch. So, idolatry seems like something that happens out there, but not here, right? Well, listen to what Kaylee says. I just love the way she puts this. She says, we no longer erect Asherah poles to ensure beauty. We don't call upon Baal to bring us success. We would not petition mammon to increase our wealth. Still, one only has to look around to see that we still worship money, sex, and power. We've simply eliminated the middleman. Wow. Such wisdom, such insight. You see, idolatry at its heart is the worship of something or someone other than God. You were created for worship. Whether you want to accept it or not, When you were thought up, when God designed the human race, he designed us for a purpose. The purpose in which we were created that runs through our very being is that we would be worshipers of God. That's what he created us for. The heart of man, the heart of women is designed by God to give him the love and affection that he deserves. But because of our sin nature, because of our propensity to want to be in the place of God ourselves, even though we're creatures and we're finite, we refuse the infinite, we refuse our creator, and we want his space. And so we, when we worship money, sex, and power, who are we really worshiping? We're worshiping satisfaction of self, aren't we? That's idolatry at its core. Idolatry at its core is self-worship. It's wanting to take that place of God. It's wanting to find uh, self-fulfillment in something other than our creator. And so the people of God, we see, again, going towards idolatry. And let that be a warning to us and a reminder to us, because that's something that there's just in us, where we tend to just kind of drift from God. Now, as you read through Micah, one of the major themes throughout the book, and it's repeated time and again, is one of the downfalls of an idolatrous society is that the society starts becoming decaying. And it's described as a society of greed, a society of lust, a society of of anger with one another in in outbreaks of, of war and fighting and infighting. But we also see a society of injustice, and this becomes one of the major themes of the book of Micah. God is displeased that his people no longer are following his example of justice. Let's read in chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me, um, to see what God is saying about this lack of justice. Verse 1, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice... You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they cry out to the Lord, but he'll not answer them. At the time, he'll hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. Verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, you who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look to the Lord for support and say, Isn't God among us? No disaster is going to come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, and the Temple Hill a mound of overgrown with thickets. Wow. God's not mincing words here. He's expressing his great displeasure over the religious hypocrisy that he sees going on and the injustices that have crept into his society, the society of his people, who were the covenant people of God who had such a major responsibility To show to the world what it was like to live under the reign of God. To follow the good and right moral laws of God. To be a demonstration so that his his salvation could come to the ends of the earth. There's more than just their happiness at stake. There's eternal consequences on their disobedience to God. And so God in his love, God in his righteousness says, I got to step in. This, isn't, this just won't do. I can't allow this justice injustice to continue. Has God ever had to get your attention? Um, I think I mentioned in one of the messages I gave a little while ago, uh, I, I, I want to be the kind of guy that, Lord, you don't have to crush me. Just squeeze me a little bit and get my attention, Lord. And, and I want to be able to respond to you quickly. You don't need to send the Assyrian army into my life to get my attention, God. I I want to be able to respond quicker. Now, sometimes it's because we're wayward and disobedient. Other times we just have to go along with what God is doing. But it does get our attention. It does call us to prayer. It does call us to the end of ourselves so that we can get ourselves in a posture of seeking God. I remember the story of some dear friends of mine. Um, when I, uh, Before I came to Summit, I was the president of an international missions organization, and I had the privilege of flying around the world and doing work all, all over the world. And uh, one place that we were really uh, active was in a country called Honduras, uh, there in Central America. And uh, in 1998, in October, during hurricane season, uh, we got news that this horrifically large Cat 4 hurricane, Hurricane Mitch, was coming up the coastline, and was about to hit Honduras. Now, there's this beautiful, idyllic city called La Ceba. It's kind of a coastal town right there. It's just gorgeous. If I think of you know, tropics and a place where I want to go, it's La Ceba. It's just gorgeous. Gorgeous beaches right there you know, on, on the Gulf of Mexico. But what makes it so cool is about a mile inland, there's 3,000 foot basically face of a mountain just lush with, with jungle, tropic greenery. It's just, it's just beautiful. Um, but could you imagine, and this is what got their attention, a hurricane coming right across the face of that. So when my friends heard this, there's a, a large church there, pastored by a good friend, Agoberto, and, and he tells me the story that that night that the hurricane was inching along and coming upon La Seba, they called the entire church together for a night of fasting and prayer. It had gotten their attention, and there on the mountainside, they just prayed, "God spare our lives." Because had this hurricane come through with the mountain as a backdrop, it would have literally scrubbed La Seba gone. It would have been just a catastrophe that you can't even imagine. It just would not have existed any longer because of the winds whipping off the mountains and then coming back to the shore. Well, it ended up being the worst natural, natural disaster in North American history till that time later. The, hurricane, or the uh, earthquakes in Haiti uh, replaced it. Um, but I'm going to tell you more of the story later. But what ended up happening is the hurricane stopped, literally backed up, and then went inland. But that particular evening, could you imagine praying for your life? God had gotten their attention. And they got desperate before the Lord. And this is really what God is calling his people to in Micah, to get to that level of desperation, Because impending judgment is happening. But what's interesting here is in the midst of this, when we think judgment, we think anger. God's not angry. God is just, he's longing for his people and he's in his love willing to do whatever is necessary to get their attention. All this injustice, all this pain, I don't believe anybody felt it more than God himself. It broke his heart. Listen to what he says in, in Micah chapter six. He says, my people... What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Please answer me. And you hear the heart of God just feeling this pain. Could you imagine a friend coming to you with that level of humility and honesty and saying, how have we gone astray? What, what have I done? Please let me know. And so God in his profound humility opens up his self to his people. And, and what's interesting is Micah records Kind of some of the responses, which is just the typical kind of religious response that's, by the way, the wrong response that you might expect. So instead of relationally coming to God, they start listing all the more religious activities they'll do. They're going to double down their religious efforts. And God's like, no. So for us, that's like, oh, okay, yeah, God's trying to get my attention. I better, I better have prayer time in the morning and, and reading time at night. And, you know, I'll go, to, I'll go to that night of worship thing, right? And those are all good things. But when we do them to try to earn God's favor, that's not what we do them for. We do spiritual disciplines to connect ourselves to God and his grace, right? But we don't do them to earn God's favor or to kind of get brownie points with God that he might kind of think more favorably of us. We do them for the good of our soul, not to get the good of God into our account. It's already there. And so they think, I got to do more religious activity. And God says, No. He says, No. And this is really the heart of the book of Micah in chapter six, verse eight. This is what he says He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Quit the religious show. I don't need you to go through more religious activity. What God is after is a heart that is different, a heart that reflects his heart. He's saying, don't go to the religious stuff. Act justly. Love mercy. Humble yourself before God and learn to walk with him. This is what God is calling us to. And what I love about this is this message to the people from ancient times rings throughout the century and arrives to us today. And the call is just as real for you and I this morning. This is what God wants from your and my heart as well. To to be the people in this world that is so desperate for answers. To reflect the justice of God. To reflect the mercy of God. And to be the people of God who walk humbly with him. Let's look for a moment at each one of these. This idea of justice is obviously something that is in vogue in in our society. And there's much good about that because there still exists injustice in our world and in our society. But what I want to caution all of us is that as we contemplate the current conversation going on in culture, if you listen closely, you'll notice there's something drastically missing. God is not in the conversation. And that's our biggest mistake. We're going to miss what true justice is if we don't first reflect on where does justice come from. Justice comes from a just God who, by his very nature, is the only one who can describe to us what it really is. He is holy. He is perfect. He's infinite. He is the creator, and we are very finite creatures who have a propensity to sin. And so in our quest for justice, we do ourselves a great favor to first understand justice as God demonstrates it and God defines it. As we've seen in this verse, it requires humility on our part, but it also requires action because justice we see in the Old Testament, God has laid out for Israel much guidance on how to be the people that he wants them to be. So we see from God legally What justice looks like in the legal system is blindness to race, to gender, to whether you're rich or poor, your societal status. Fortunately, we live in a country that is trying to adopt those ideals, but we recognize that as human beings, there's always a tension between the ideal and us being able to live it out. And so we go through seasons that when God's not in the picture, this can be inverted and we start using it for our own gain because of our human propensity to care for ourselves through idolatry. But in a perfect situation of God's justice, He will judge fairly with no respecter of persons. And that's legally what justice looks like. And may God help us as a society move to that ideal. In business, just, justice looks like no exploitation of your employees, no cheating, no underhanded dealing. All right? That is injustice, and God is displeased with that. He wants us to pay people fairly and to care for them well. I'm so thankful. I know some of you are in business, and some of you are actually leaders of your own business. And I want you to really think and pray about this. And for all of us that go to work every day, we want to bring this sense of justice there. I'm thinking of a good friend who's got... Uh, a, A wonderful business and he calls his approach to business a multiple bottom line approach to business. And what he means by that is that my business, yes, it needs to be good for the investors. We want to give them a good return on their money. But it also has to be good for my employees. I wanna create a culture that people love working here. I wanna create a culture where we're kinda working together and we're bringing out the best of one another and we're fair to our employees and we actually create an environment where people love working here. But then we want it to be good for the people that are the recipients of the services that we offer. We really want it to make a difference in their lives. And so how can we, as business leaders, create a business that is actually adding to the end users of our service and product. And then finally, they've created with a number of their profits, they've created this beautiful foundation that is helping underprivileged kids in our city, kids from some of the most poorest neighborhoods and some of the most under-resourced, underperforming schools. And they're helping them to be better students and to position themselves to get scholarships, both from this fund and from other places. And they've got now close on, I believe, a hundred kids that have now gone on to college through the scholarships that they're offering. It's incredible. One of them's at Wake Forest where my son's playing football. It's just, it's just the coolest thing. That's what justice looks like. Through business. We see justice in relationships where we're fair and kind to one another. God calls us to justice in our community. What is that? It's caring for the vulnerable, it's caring for the poor. Read your Bible. It's so clear God is the father to the fatherless. He's the husband to the widow. He cares deeply for those who are far from God and in situations where they are poor and where they are being oppressed and taken advantage of. And God says that he himself will raise to their defense. And he wants us, his people, to reflect that kind of justice to demonstrate the power of God and the strength of God, to have the courage to lay down our lives in ways that will care for those who are in a season of their life where they can't care for themselves. Put your political things aside and just see with the heart of God. And I, I don't care where you're at on that spectrum, that's okay. What I'm talking about is biblical justice. What does it look like to be that kind of people, to demonstrate to the world what this looks like? In the church, unfortunately, um, the church in the West in particular, uh, we've, we've kind of got into this kind of one or the other approach to the Gospel. Right? I come from a tradition that would say, we need to tell the world about Jesus. Man, just get on a plane and go, and tell as many people as you can about Jesus. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Right? And then you have the side of the church that says, no, 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 uh, that's fine. You can say We need to demonstrate the love of Christ. We need to love people. We need to serve people. And so we get this kind of unfortunate, this is a a very Western thing, an either-or approach to the gospel. And that's just so unfortunate, you guys. It's not either-or. It's both-and. We're called to both. And in fact, I believe now that we live in a time that unless we are demonstrating the gospel, we'll never quite get the full audience that we are looking for until we demonstrated it, right? We have to demonstrate it for them to listen. I learned this uh, in that tragedy of Honduras. Because our mission there was so large, we were in virtually every major city and village of, of the country. And so Franklin Graham uh, and Samaritan's Purse, who comes in for recovery and relief in tragic situations, chose us to be their on-the-ground partner. And so they went about the process of rebuilding Honduras, Hurricane Mitch was the greatest natural disaster in Western Hemisphere history at that point in time. 90% of their crops were gone. 70% of their bridges and infrastructure were washed away. There were millions of displaced people. When I flew in, which was one of of the first flights in after they opened the airport, the waterline in the airport was above my head. You could see the stain on the wall. And they drove us immediately to the Olympic Stadium, where there were tens of thousands of people living in a tent village. In all, quarter million people were in these villages, these tent cities that Samaritan's Purse put together, and they fed them, and they gave them the medical attention they needed, and they gave them the clothing and the blankets, and they helped them rebuild their lives. And over the next two years, rebuilt thousands of homes to help these displaced people put their lives back together. And then, two years in, uh, we were back at that same Olympic stadium that once held the village of those people that were displaced. And he, for two nights, had a crusade, where Franklin got up in the old Billy Graham-style crusade and preached the gospel. He had the most successful response he had ever seen. We were at breakfast the morning following, and he just said that was the most responsive crusade we've ever done. Why? Well, for two years, he showed them the love of Christ. Now, if you know Franklin, he also told them along the way. All right? But for two years, he demonstrated it. He fed him. He cared for them. He rebuilt their country. And by the time he stood up to tell them about the love of Christ, they couldn't get out of their seats fast enough. That's the way it works. When we demonstrate justice, we demonstrate the power of God, and we earn ourselves an audience to hear the gospel he also calls us to mercy. Mercy is punishment that we deserve that has been withheld. Grace is giving us the gift we don't deserve. They're kind of the two sides of a similar coin. all right. But mercy is withholding punishment that we've earned. God is merciful to us and that he is not giving us the just punishment that we deserve. And he calls us to be merciful like him. Well, one place I know that I can immediately apply this uh, is on 417 or I-4. <laughs> all right? Because I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm one of those drivers where my driving is the standard. I'm like, they probably put me in the textbook of the way Kern drives. And so if you're slower than me or faster than me, you're a jerk. All right. Um, all right. So I need to learn to kind of show mercy as I'm driving, as I've got that standard. Uh, Those of you that laughed can identify with me and you do the same thing. I know it, all right? So uh, that's kind of a fun little one to think about, but in all seriousness, where do you need to show mercy in your relationships? Your marriage? Your close friends? Your children? Your family? Let me encourage you. If you're in a season where you're having relational disharmony, and I know those can be dark days. Marriages that seem to be failing are just so painful. And the cycle of pain and inflicting pain just kind of feeds upon itself. I just want to encourage you that I think mercy is one of the main routes out. You have to prime the pump of putting back into that relationship and restoring to that relationship some kindness, some civility. And if all you're stuck on is all the ways that they're hurting you and all the ways that they deserve kind of punishment for the way they've been acting, you're never going to go anywhere. Someone has to take the lead. Someone has to draw strength from God. Someone has to draw upon His mercy and prime the pump by injecting mercy into that relationship. I'm not going to hold you into the punishment that I think you deserve. And if you say it that way, it's not gonna work. I mean, you just gotta get yourself there. You've just gotta say, I love you, and that I want us to work, and I'm willing to do whatever we have to do to get there. Take the lead, show the strength of God, be the people of mercy. Where do you need to bring mercy into the relationships of your life? It will be the path to intimacy every time because we will fail one another. We will hurt one another. We're human beings for Pete's sakes, right? And so if we don't have grace and mercy in our relationships, they're not going to go anywhere and they will not move to the intimacy that God wants us to have. We're to show justice. We're to show mercy and we're to walk humbly with our God. Again, he's creator, we're creatures, he's infinite, we're finite. That in of itself, if you truly recognize it, will create humility. It'll create the right mindset between you and God. You need something that he's got. He's smarter than you, he's wiser than you, he's more powerful than you. All right? And so we need to humbly acknowledge who we are and who he is. He is holy and we're in desperate need of getting strength to follow his example of holiness. It doesn't come natural. And so we need to walk humbly with our God. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says, "Um, To this person I will look, to him who is humble and broken of spirit and who trembles at my word. When we tremble at God's word, we're acknowledging he has wisdom that we need, so we're willing to do what we need to go get that wisdom. But not only does uh, humility look like coming to God to his word, it also looks like doing what it says. Listen to how Paul describes uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself, in Philippians chapter 2. Um, Philippians is, is this way, chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Do you see it? Humility in our relationship with God looks like doing what he says, obeying him. Our example is the Lord Jesus who, although he was God, emptied himself, did cling to the rights of being God, and willingly became a man, and not only a man, but a man who would go to the cross for our sakes. Why? Because that was the Father's will. That's, hum- that's humility. Doing what God tells us to do. This is what it looks like to be the people of God, and I think it's our culture is so desperate for us to be those very people. But what I love about each one of these minor prophets, and Micah does the same thing, is he gives us premonition as to how. How we do this. When I spoke on Joel, right in the midst of his prophecy about end times and the coming dreadful final day of judgment of God, the day of the Lord. Joel just says, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just every time. God just wants us to know. He's got a plan. God just wants us to know that he's taking care of the opportunity for us to experience his redemption, for us to experience his mercy. But friends, mercy is not cheap. Yes, we don't get punished, but that punishment was not cheap. That punishment was paid for by Jesus. And so Micah tells us, that there's a Messiah who's coming. And he does so in Micah 5 two. It's this beautiful prophecy, which is a whole nother topic of itself that I just love. But here, hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, he tells us in Bethlehem, the Messiah is going to be born. The one who will reign is coming. And I'm even going to tell you what city he's coming from. Only God can do that. So in the midst of this God calling us to justice, God telling us that he's got to bring his judgment and his correction, he just has to remind us of his plan. And his plan has been and always will be Jesus at the cross. He died the death that we were supposed to die, and he lived the life that we were supposed to live. He didn't sin, and so he didn't deserve to be on the cross. And yet in the greatest act of love that you could ever possibly fathom, he who knew no sin went to the cross. And the Bible says he took our sin upon himself. And in that moment, God poured out the fullness of his wrath. Every last ounce left nothing on the table. Every iota was absorbed by the person of Christ. So that the just payment for all wrongdoing and all evil would be fully paid Mercy is not cheap. It costs Jesus everything so that you and I could experience no punishment from God. What a beautiful thing. The great news is that death on the cross and all of that sin was not strong enough to hold him in the grave. But he defeated our mortal enemies for all time, sin and death, when he victoriously rose from the grave. What a great story. great because it's true. And now God offers that to all of us. I've made this appeal every time that I've preached because really the application this morning should be pretty obvious. But I want to speak to those that perhaps are here that have questions about God, have questions about this whole story of Jesus substituting himself so that you can be forgiven. I'm just really glad you're here. Keep wrestling with your questions. And I just want to make myself available. Some people are taking me up on this, and I love it. Uh, I'll meet with you. We'll study together. I'll wrestle with the questions with you. And I want to encourage you, take as long as you need, but no longer than you have to. This is very, very important that you find answers to your questions. And there are answers if you'll invite God into it. And for those of us that are followers of Christ, I just pray that this whole series and this message today will remind us that being a follower of Christ is a call to action. I'm so glad for the disciplines you're showing, like showing up for worship today. But all of our learning is so that we become better at loving. All of our following of Jesus is so that we become like him. We are his hands and his feet in our society today. And he is calling us to act justly. In doing so, I believe it is the way in our culture, especially today, that we will earn an audience for the message of Christ, the life-giving, eternal life-giving message that they need to hear. And when we show mercy, we demonstrate what we ourselves have received as we give it to those that God has put in our lives to love. And in doing so, friends, we're walking humbly with our God. I'm so thankful to be part of this church. I just think we find that balance here. When we said we're going to serve the vulnerable children of our city, we had hundreds of people volunteer. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. You get this. Keep going. Keep working. It's tiresome, I know, at times. And you got to reach down and go after it. But let me tell you, when we look back in eternity and we're kind of reviewing the game film of our life, we'll be so glad we did. That we were the people of God that had the opportunity to demonstrate justice and mercy as we humbly follow our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... This message, thank you, Lord, for what you teach us through Micah and all the minor prophets. And I just pray, Lord, for uh, the men and women that have come here this morning. I'm just so glad that we get to share this um, hour of worship together. And Lord, I, I just invite you all over again to teach us, Lord, what it means to be the people of God, what it means to bring justice to our world, and to the worlds in which we live. And Lord, I just invite you to help us, Lord, when we want to find life outside of you to protect us from idolatry, Lord, and and instead to become people who demonstrate mercy, who learn the power of giving our lives away and emptying ourselves for the sake of others. And as we do, Lord, I believe we'll be walking humbly with you and we'll honor you as a result. Give us your strength. Lead us by your Spirit. I pray this all in the powerful and risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.